Hey, welcome to the podcast today, everybody. Today, I've got, I think it's the first accountant we've got on our show. We've got Jeremy LeBoff from Sobel Roads. Uh, Jeremy's got a fantastic, uh, wide and varied background. He was telling me earlier about his new Harley that he, he's about to take uh, possession of. Uh, so a bit of a hog rider on two wheels, but he, he's got a great background prior to becoming an accountant. I won't steal his thunder. I'll get him to introduce himself and uh, welcome. Jeremy, tell us about yourself. Hey, well, um, thank you very much. I've, first of all, I've actually got to say, since we spoke, the Harley has arrived. Excellent. So it's a wonder that you managed to get me a tour today because I've discovered a new home. It's absolutely amazing. So if anyone hasn't gone down that route, I would recommend it highly. Um, my first Harley Davidson, something I've wanted for years. Anyway, um, enough about that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, my background is slightly unusual. I, I'm, I'm the, the accountant who actually learned pretty much everything he knows down the pub. Um, quite literally, because my, my background before becoming an accountant was running pubs and restaurants. Uh, I got into that um, straight from college. Um, I trained with a couple of the, the, the larger uh, national um, chains brands um, within the UK. Really good, high quality training. Um, and I was running businesses. Um, you know, I had my first license by the time I was 21. Saw some success in that. Um, Double-digit double growth. Um, teams that had some really good success. Um, so the thing is, I've been there, I've run businesses. Um, there was a family business that came after that, a restaurant where we were recommended by Time Out three years running. And that the long hours and the staff worries and the stock issues and the cash flow, all the stuff that accountants uh, talk about, I've been there and I've done it um, uh, for good and for bad. Um, so, and that comes into what I do on a day-to-day -day basis now because uh, I, I've got that kind of emotional connection. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I started, a little bit different from others, I would say. Yeah, so you've been there in the shoes of, of I guess, what many of your clients are experiencing. So you can see uh, things from their perspective uh, when you're bringing all of the, well, the magic that you perform as an accountant. Yes, I would say that you know, having an understanding of that those day-to-day -day challenges that many accountants, whilst there are a number who obviously run their own businesses as an accountancy firm, there are many accountants out there who actually have never had to deal with um, actual running a business um, and uh, keeping the books and juggling all of the different myriad of emotional challenges that are coming along. Um, so yes, I do understand it. Um, and I've done the early hours and the late evenings and the missing family events um, that come with what is the food leisure retail business. Um, and, and I know that you, know, you, you don't drop it at the door. You walk away with it and you sleep with it and you get up in the morning with it. Um, and um, it, it's all absorbing. And sometimes I think clients appreciate someone who, who's been there as well. Yeah, really been there. So I think you've, you know, as a pub, you owned the pub, you ran the pub, you lived the pub. Yeah, well, to be fair, the brewery owned the pub, um, but there was a later restaurant which I owned as well. Um, okay. It was it was a family business. Um, so, um, but yes, I lived in the pub. Um, so I learned how to do stock counts, how to manage cash. Um, I was one of the, the few account that the few account few uh, pub um, managers at the time who um, got a really good grasp of how profit and loss account worked. Um, you'd be amazed how many people, you know, at the time it was, it was something that it was just a computer report that got churned out and the area uh, manager or whoever would come around and bash you over the head with it. 
Um, and I learned about wage percentages and gross profit margins literally working that way and understanding the importance of finding out, hang on, this, this, this area here, this is where your cash delivery is. Um, and this area here, this is very good for developing out, you know, in terms of um, a long-term strategy for marketing or whatever else and making sure that you have staff in the right place at the right time. So I would say that I learned an awful lot. And even though that industry is very different from many others, the concepts of how you run, how you replicate, and those, those types of things to create consistency of service are the same. Um, and actually, it's a, it's a mixture of both manufacturing, because you are producing goods, food and drink and whatever, and service, because it's an experience that you're selling to your clientele at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, bang on. The principles of running a business are the same in every industry, aren't they? You've got to acquire clients, you've got to look after them, and you've got to you know, encourage them to come back and, and keep you know, using you again. You're absolutely right. And when that comes down to it, it's not just a question of giving them you know, excellent service one-off they need to have confidence that it's going to be every time. And for that reason, you've got to have, as I said before, that consistency. Uh, one of the strongest things I, I learned, and this is when I was with Whitbread, um, and, uh, was the concept of what was called a brand audit. Now, at that time, I had no idea what a real audit was in the terms of, and now I do as an accountant. But the brand audit was a question, of, this is how we do things. And there was a Bible and you would get, you know, I'm sure everyone knows what a mystery diner is. But this was Mystery Diner times 100 because it would be somebody employed by the firm who would go in and not only secretly be there to see how things are running, but would then announce themselves and go through everything, the back of house, the front of house, the way things are laid out to check it off against a standard to make sure that consistently the chain, I was working for Brewers Fair at the time, uh, which some, some people may know, consistently the chain was the same through every branch. Um, so what we were looking for there was that Every product is the same. Every experience is the same, looks the same, feels the same because people get the confidence of what they're buying. We'll just take that and transfer that over. We see that, you know, in, in every other business. If you've got a clientele in your business, let's just say you're selling widgets, the good old fashioned widget, you need to make sure that that widget is the same every time. Otherwise, people are just going to say it's unreliable. Um, and the same in professional services. People need to know that they're going to have their phone answered. They're going to have their emails replied to. It's going to be polite that this is the way they do things at Joe Blogs and Co, um, whatever else it is. Um, and that's one of the things that I really took away from, uh, from, from working in that environment and which I do bring into to what I do now because it's about the systemization, delivering it consistently so people know what they're getting. Okay, so yeah, bang on. Great example of you know, that consistency you know, which, which gives confident clients and customers confidence of the experience they're gonna get. So it de-risks their purchase, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, so they there's some experiences, systemization and consistency, which you know, I'm hearing you're applying to your clients. What else did you learn from that experience that you use with your clients every day now? That it's always right to be polite. That's a really <laughs> simple one. You know, you, you, come from, if you, you come from an environment where you are face to face with your customers every day. Um, and sometimes they're on the other side of tipsy. So they may not necessarily be as rational as they were three hours beforehand. Um, you need to know that what you're saying, you have to craft your words carefully. Um, you need to make sure that you're not accidentally saying something that could be taken the wrong way. Um, and from this, I've learned that within my client communication now, I would hand up to say that one of, one of the areas that I am not necessarily as efficient as others is when I write an email, for example. 
um, because I spend a lot of time listening to how does it feel when I read it back and making sure that there's that connection. And if I'm not comfortable with it, I'll redo it. But then I know that sometimes you just pick up a phone or I love the thing I, that, that has really come to the fore now with re relation to, to the recent lockdown is Zoom. Um, because I get to look in people's eyes and, you know, they can see my hands moving around and, and the excitement there or whatever else. And that element of understanding how your customer, your client is reacting to you is something that I've definitely taken from the pub and applied it in my professional services um, and, and saying to even to within my team, just read that back because sometimes an email reads very differently from how it was written. And that's a really simple thing, but it can win or lose clients very easily. Yeah. And that is nothing to do with accountancy. That is to do with every business. And when I'm looking at my own clients, I make sure that I'm doing that with them. Um, and sometimes in a position whereby you're then saying to them, you know, there are ways of doing this, sharing the ideas of, of using Zoom, Loom I use a lot if I'm explaining it. I don't know if you, do you know Loom, Daryl? Yeah, video editing. Yeah, absolutely. Very quick, I can record a video and sometimes recording a video and showing a client what's going on is so much better than writing an email and explaining it. Um, people just get that connection with it. And I often get clients who will then say, that's really good, I'm gonna try that myself. And they take it and they use it with their clients or their staff or whatever else. Yeah. Um, so it's not just about numbers, it's about communication really. Well, I think it's, it's very much about communication and you know, the amount of times that I've written an email and uh, you see an email and you go, when you're writing the email, you're talking to it in your head. And so you know the tone that it's, it's written and then it comes back and you go, well, how did they interpret it like that? And, and then you read it as you're suggesting and it can be interpreted a different way to the way you read it in your head. So yeah, yeah, I, that's I, where, I where uh, Loom is brilliant, I think, for that. Yeah, I'm okay. no salesman for Loom, but I'd say it's probably one of the, the better tools that, that I've got in, in, in my disposal to, 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 to kind of bridge that, that gap of words on a page through to actually something that's, uh, that's a bit more meaningful. Um, and, and it's that element of systemization, again, um, that then allows you to, to say, actually, this works um, and I'm going to use this more often. So it went from being something I did once or twice to being something now I look at and go, actually, this is, is, is practical more often than not. And I, I, I do briefings as well that way. Um, yeah. It's just quicker and easier. And people so what, yeah, what, what I'm hearing, Jeremy, is, is it's just the tool of always. And I think this is a complaint that many people have about their accountants is that they, 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 their expectations aren't managed on the front foot. They're managed on the back foot. So what I'm hearing you say is that you're always proactively, you know, based on your, your experience in the, in the hospitality industry, where you really have to be sharp and on the ball and, and it's live all the time. And it's, it's very transactional, but it's always very alive. You know, you're applying what you've learned there and going, I've got to be on my A game with communication. I've got to be on the front foot. So the client knows, always knows what's happening next and, uh, and leading them through the process. Well, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, just look at Andrew Rhodes and Melvin Sobel, who, who founded Sobel Rhodes. 25 years they're celebrating. In fact, they've, they've been working together for far longer than that. Um, and from the day that Sobel Rhodes was started, um, there is a customer service, um, client service charter, um, service level agreement. And in there is the fact that we treat each other as we, we expect others to be treated. We return telephone calls and, and emails you know, within 24 hours. Um, but that beds in, that, those are a few points that you could say, okay, I can tick the box on that. But it builds in that idea that we're supposed to be there and looking after them. And the, the mission statement of the firm is to start where others, other, other accountants finish. So it's not about just saying, thank you very much, there are your accounts, pay that to the tax man, we'll see you in 18 months time. 
it's actually saying, okay, here are the accounts. Now let's look forward, which is the point that you're making, being proactive and saying, okay, what's going to be coming up now? Can, how, where can we work with you in terms of development? By the way, we've identified this. Um, and the great thing is, and partly because I'm a bit of a geek, um, even though, you know, that that I pretend not to be. Um, probably your friend, the friends behind me tell you that, that I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a geek at heart, um, is that today we've got so many tools and online gadgets that we can use to make our clients' lives easier and truthfully a little bit more interesting to read, um, that we're in a position whereby we can make things that were previously tedious and boring um, slightly more interesting and they're more likely now to say, actually, that's something I'm interested in. Talking about cash flow, you know, six months ago was, yeah, okay, I know it's important, but I kind of do it. Now we've been able to focus partly because of the COVID crisis, um, partly because the, the, the industry has got so much in there. We can now be proactive and say, actually, here's some tools that can really make you understand your business in a better and different way. I think I went off slightly from what you were asking, but that, that's essentially, um, yeah, that proactivity element of it. Well, what we're really here to talk about today is, yeah, how do you work with your clients to help them get ready for exit? And how do you add value into their business to make their businesses worth more to get them ready and their businesses ready for exit? So I think, you know, you're on the right track there. So uh, what else is it that you guys do in that area when you when the clients start to indicate or, or they've been running their business for a while? You look at them, you can see that, hey, look, you know, you've been talking about you've got the next generation coming through or you've been talking about, you know, bringing more partners on or you know, equity or employee share ownership or even if you know, they're thinking about just a straight out exit what sort of things do you guys do to help them prepare well first of all that's the fun bit um, if you're in a position whereby you can help a client really achieve that life stream whether it's a question if they put you know blood sweat and tears into a business for x number of years and they're now looking for that sale um, that's that life-changing um, sale mm. or whether it's a question of they've come to the point where they're now ready for it to be handed over to the next generation, whether that's a familial generation or just a business generation. Um, they want to leave a legacy. It may not be necessarily be about money, but leaving it in safe hands. And to be fair, there may be the fact that they, they've got to preserve the income because they've got some sort of payout coming. But, but along those lines, that's when it gets interesting. Um, and we're in a position to help them by, first of all, you know, the big question, what is it you're trying to achieve? Um, and when we know where it is they're trying to get to, we're, we can say, right, let's benchmark where we are now. And the, and the process there would be able to draw upon the fact that we've got within our team, um, Melvin Sobel is um, a valuer who's given, uh, he, he's an expert witness. He's given evidence in court on a number of occasions. We can sit down and give um, evaluation as to where we are at the moment. And that's, that's, you know, there's an art and science question about that. And then, okay, where are we going to get to to try and achieve what you want? And this is where the good stuff comes in because sitting down and saying, okay, the pay, your company sells widgets and a widget company in the Southeast is worth X based on this multiple. That's all very well and good. But the real strength of how are you going to add value is how do you pass that business on? How do you make sure that that business is saleable without you? Um, and that's the thing is for, for a lot of business owners, their business has been dependent on what they do. Um, and what they put in and for them to be able to sell that business for all the value that they feel that it's worth um, they need to be able to extract that knowledge and sell that knowledge with the business yeah. um, but without themselves um, and that's where we can get involved that's where the, the notion of systemization simplification um, clarifying exactly what it is that they're about 
um, comes into it because if they've got that pure owner ownership structure without a strong managerial board that's going to be there to provide consistency again we're coming back to consistency it's going to devalue what they're able to get for their business as they move on or if they're looking to pass it down and there's a huge knowledge gap between them and that next generation that business will not live up to their expectations and it will flounder and the people below them will will feel failures when actually it's because they haven't got what they need to take it on and run with it if, if that kind of makes sense within there there's a whole scope of services that we provide i don't know how much detail you want me to get into though on that well, but you know, get into it. it's obviously something you're very passionate about and, and get into with your clients so um yeah, what I'm hearing is, you know, what, what people crave, and I was talking about this earlier with, with someone else around, you know, the, the, the team are actually craving really good leadership and the business owners need to step out of the technical role or the tactician role and into that leadership role where they, you know, they're not doing the work anymore, but the coaching, guiding when, and building the systems and structures. So the business as, what is it, consistent, repeatable, reliable, you know, which will lead to sustainable. You know, i.e. sustainably running without them. And you know, that's what we're looking for in the business. So in your experience, how long would you, in an ideal world, would you love your clients to come to you before they want to sell? Is it you know, sort of three months, three years, five years? What's the ideal time frame that you'd love them to, to, to you know, start talking with you about this? Okay, so there's, there's ideal and then there's reality. So yeah. ideally, long before it's even a consideration, I'm 45 now, says Mrs. Client, um, and I would like to be in a position whereby by the time I'm 55, I can sell for X. That would be lovely. And then we can sit down and we can start to look at what is it that we need to do. That's a 10-year window to start building in benchmarks that we can measure on a year-by-year -year basis, putting in, in there, okay, if we want to achieve X, then we know that we need to have sales and profits of Y, within 10 years and so we can have a financial model um, mm -hmm. and we can then also then put in place the structural um, model to make sure that financial model can succeed if that makes sense totally that's rare you know very few people that we deal with are, are thinking that far ahead um, truthfully i would say for us to really do justice um, we'd really want to be involved from about three years out um, but often, um, I would say if it's a year or so, we're in a position to still make some sort of a difference. It's just a lot more compact. If they come to us three months, or by the way, yesterday I decided, or I've got an offer on the table already, um, it means that an awful lot of that groundwork was already passed under the bridge. Um, mix of metaphors there, but a lot, a lot of that has already gone. Um, and we're then in a position whereby we do provide a valuable role, but it's more in terms of maximization through the compliance stage of making sure that the hidden nasties that the purchasing party are going to identify through the, the um, due diligence are minimized and looked after in, in that respect. Yeah. Truthfully, we would like to have at least 12 months and ideally up to three years to be able to work on a long-term plan, grow it, get it in place whereby it is then fit to take to market rather than us being told, by the way, we're selling X um, and um, you've now got to help us get the best price for it. Because it's, yeah, it's, totally. it's difficult. It's difficult then. It, it must be frustrating being in your shoes when, when your clients come to you and say, hey, look, help me run my business and I want it to be as tax effective as possible. And you go, sure, well, here's, here's the way to run your business tax effective. And then they go, 
oh, by the way, I'm going to sell my business. And you go, well, if you told me that, we, we, we really needed to change your structure from or your, 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 the way you're running your business from tax effective to asset building. Because we're building an asset, we really ideally need a three-year runway so that we can get the history of growth of profits and get some realistic valuations and make your transition easier, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client yeah. or, or whoever it is. Now, you're absolutely right, um, because when you're looking at it, that, that to a certain extent, one of the things that we talk about is that when you're growing a business um, and when you're looking at profit generation and all of those 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 great things that come with with, um, with you know just getting bigger you can't let the tax tail wag the dog and what i mean by that is you can't go right tax first and then we're going to try and grow you know you need to make sure that the tax is efficient we need to make sure that every potential um, opportunity is taken advantage of um, equally that our clients are keeping their noses clean and not you know not getting themselves into hot water with her majesty and all of her lovely representatives for no particular reason or even for any particular reason keeping them happy in that respect um but we've got a business to grow and we can't restrict ourselves and i'm going to give a really small example is the number of times when as i started as a, as as, as a, an accountant and i was dealing with small sole trader businesses more often there would be people who were they were holding their business back because they didn't want a VAT register. This is this is a real world example. I think probably people would under they didn't want a VAT register, so they were busy trying to keep their business from not quite going over eighty three thousand pounds. And the thing is, once they got over that, their business expanded massively. Once they got past the fact that there was this tax thing, so it's, a, it's an example that kind of is, I use to illustrate a point. Um, so when it comes to the other side of it, yes. If we know up front what's going to be going on, we can be looking at things like the structure of the business because is there entrepreneurs relief available? Um, is there things that we need to be considering about capital gains tax inside a company, outside a company? Who owns it? Are we looking that this business is going to be passed on to different people or are we going to be selling it as a whole or whatever else? And those types of things are important. Um, and it's difficult to try and make it right. Um, or make it cost effective when you are already knee deep in the fact that there is something here and to suddenly say, by the way, this thing that we're selling, we want to change the structure of it, the, the, the buyers are just going to walk away. Uh, it's as simple as that. So yeah, we, we do want to know uh, well in advance and, and, and get the answers to those questions. And that's why one of the first questions that we ask when we meet someone is, what are your plans? You know, a, a simple one, a small property business, what are your plans in terms of how you're going to exit from this, are we building up a portfolio of properties or are we buying and selling and turning them over? Because depending on what your plan is will depend on what the best way to go about it um, um, tax-wise is. Totally. Yeah. yeah, look, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? And uh, there's, there's no one size fits all for how do I exit a business. And I was talking to someone the other day and he says, I don't have an exit plan for my business. I don't plan to exit my business. I said, that sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> If you, if you want to keep working till you drop, well, that's a plan. And then I said, so what happens in the event of an unplanned exit? Mm. And he said, well, it doesn't matter. And I said, but what about those around you? Mm. What impact you, what do you want to happen for them? Should that, you know, that unfortunate situation happen? You got a plan for the unplanned exit. And uh, so he looked at me all a bit strange and sort of said, well, my accountant will take over. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> You've hit upon uh, two things that we that we put an awful lot of emphasis on, and they're not even an accountancy thing. 
this business. shareholders agreements yeah. and wills yeah um because you know yeah the guy who or the lady who i've got no exit i love working and everything else you know, god forbid that the worst thing happens and they are yeah, unfortunately they pass away or even worse is they're put in a position whereby they cannot work and they are alive but barely there are people having to look after them there's a business that, that, that it, it's all up in front who's going to run this um and what's going to happen especially if there are partners involved whether business or otherwise you do need to think those things ahead and and often and and this is something that is very important especially when you're looking at exit planning is um is saying to people when they're when they're family orientated especially um you need to plan for the bad day while the times are good while everyone's comfortable and everyone's doing okay and there's nothing here to worry about you need to say today this is what's going to happen um because when i sit down with with a client and say fine this is where we're going with this we're going to be going in this direction and the plan is that in five years time you're going to go off and, and sell the business for example and all being well mr smith over here you and your family and your wife because you and your wife own half the shares on that side each and Mrs. Jones, you and your husband over here own on that, that side half each. You'll all go off and you'll get 25% of the shares each and you'll pay your capital gains and lovely. But if somewhere along the line, one of the key people passes away, then you've got one key person now responsible for the entire business, but with another person who owns half the business taking half the profits. Um, and that's gonna change things massively. So even when you're talking about exit, you have to consider what's going to happen on the road to exit that might change the dynamics here. Um, and that's when um, we, we do find and that when you talk about a shareholders agreement, it's, it's something that people don't want to hear because it means money. But in my opinion, and it's not money in my coffers, it, you know, it, we're talking about getting here a, a good solicitor that you know and trust. Uh, in my opinion, it's possibly one of the most important documents that any business can get, especially if there's an exit plan in place. Yeah, look, we're, on, we're on the same page there, mate. We, uh, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. So, hey, if I can pick up on something you just sort of glossed over earlier, and you just mentioned about valuation and that you guys do valuations, and you just slipped in, you know, is it an art or a science? Is there something you, you, you want to tell us more about that, uh, your, your views on, yeah. on, on maximising the value for, for clients' businesses? Absolutely. Um, so... On the base level, there are certain rules and, and accepted processes when it comes to valuing a business. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to be talking about trading business that, that it, the value is tied up in the profit that it makes rather than the fact that it's got a, a bucket load of assets that you can say this is what they're worth. So you've got this, you've got this business, it's trading. Um, you would then want to go through the process where we'd have a look at what are the, the annual profits? Um, adjusting for various different things, but it's pretty standard and formulaic, things like depreciation and tax and interest, stripping out things that are non-repeatable, um, replacing, and, and, and I'm sure many people who are listening to this will understand this, replacing what may be a low director salary, high dividends relationship with what would happen if I actually had to pay someone who had my job. Um, and that often changes the profitability of a business straight away. 
um, because as soon as you throw in you know, another 60, 80,000 pounds worth of salary and nothing's changed, um, it makes a big difference. So taking all of those things, then we would be looking at what the multiplier is and that's how much you multiply the, the, those adjusted profits by and they will be dependent on different um, different industries the different markets that are on at the time we take we will take reference to various different areas. and all of these types of things are scientific to be honest with you yes there is a, there's an element uh, that is the opinion of the value as to which multiple you're going to use but within a range they're normally kind of accepted across the way valuations work but there's other things in there. There's what's called discounts. There's other things in terms of the way that one might value the continuity of a business that are beyond just maths. And that's where it becomes important. And that's where once we've got an idea of valuation, um, that we can start to add value. And it comes back to that idea before about consistency, repeatability, and having someone knowing that they can take it on board. If you're selling a business where it's one person who's got it all up here, um, and the business is great, but they do everything, then the purchaser will, will, will know that straight away. And the price that you're going to be able to get for it is going to be much lower. If you're in a situation whereby that person has built up a business and oddly they are in a position whereby it actually doesn't matter if they come in from one week to the next, they touch things, they go through a few things, there's a few standard checks, then they're in a position whereby they can sell on something that's got value. And that's where we can then start to focus on the systems. What's going on in this business? How do they make it repetitive? How do they build it up so that it works in a way that anybody can pick it up and do it? And this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the food leisure industry taught me both the skills that one would apply to manufacturing a la Henry Ford, but equally the skills that one applies to um, a, a more um, business folk, uh, more service based um, uh, business, um, which for example, I would actually say this because Ray Kroc of McDonald's is probably the, the, the ultimate person to look at. Took an idea and basically said, this is what you do. So that systemization is key. And we do it through um, working through slim, um, swim lane um, analysis, going through critical control points, identifying where the risk of something going wrong exists, putting a system in place for that and work very closely with clients. Like that. And I enjoy that kind of thing. The other side of it is then um, looking at what... Um, our managing partner, Andrew Rose, um, refers to as the 12 golden nuggets and looking within there because there are some key ways of adding value, um, especially when it comes to sales. So awards, looking at a way, is there a way that we can help our clients putting themselves forward for awards, therefore getting a recognition for their businesses? Again, it raises the profile of the business. It adds value to how much somebody's going to get. Um, and we walk that walk because we put ourselves forward for awards and thankfully uh, we, we we've won more than we've lost um and uh, and we're recognized within our industry and within our peers um as being someone who does that so that's another of the areas that we would look at and then we might even look at something a little bit more um soft focus and work with key partners um in terms of business um, in terms of management training and what's going on there and it may be that we identify areas, we work with clients and say this is something that we need to be working on, but bringing in others. Um, so it might be, for example, somebody like yourself or, or Christine, um, who, who we know very well, but equally we might be looking at talking to somebody who's a specialist within HR um, because we've identified that there's a question here that these people really need to get a handle on. Um, and if they can get that bolted down, that again will give rigidity and firmness to their, 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 their workforce 
and hopefully add some power to uh, to what they're selling on as well. So there's various different things in there, and that's why valuation, which is the point that we asked here, um, valuation um, is both an art and a science, <laughs> and there's a constant debate because well, mathematically you could make it be whatever you want on paper. But the truth yeah. is that using the, art, the concept of actually there are some things here we can concentrate on, you can then um, be in a position whereby the, the, the art comes into saying, actually, we can prove through, through looking at other businesses of similar ilk who have gone through these stages that there is, I say prove, we probably can't prove it at the point, um, but, but we, that, that, um, that there is an argument here that this business is worth more. Um, and then it comes down to being able to, to back it up with documentation and systems and, and whatever else. Yeah, substantiate the valuation. And, and I think at the end of the day, you can, you can put all your arts and your science and, and you know, to, to get your best valuation. But at the end of the day, it's worth what someone wants to pay for it. And sometimes there's competitive right. tension. Sometimes there's a single buyer. Sometimes, you know, what we really want to do is, is get uh, attractive to a strategic acquirer because, you know, you add value to them. Uh, as opposed to you just being a competitor that they're taking out of the marketplace and they're just buying your client list. So, you know, clearly this is an area where you know, you've got a lot of energy, a lot of passion. You could talk all day about this sort of stuff. Um, but, but thinking of the, the people listening to the show now, the podcast, what's the one, one real message that you wanted them to take away from this conversation with us, Jeremy, that you think it really makes an impact about the way that you guys and at Sobel Roads work with businesses to, to help them get ready for exit? Um, actually, I'm going I'm to go for two. One that I'd like them to take away for them and one that, that I think we, we try and make sure we, we give out. Um, so at Sobel Roads, like I said, we, we aim to start where other accountants finish and for me personally, a number of my partners and, and, and other people, we, we very much look at when we, we employ people within, within our team and engage members of our, of our staff, that we're looking at attitude um, and the way that they are as people and the way they interact with other people and therefore clients, that clients are looked after, um, that we are their, their hand to hold and sometimes their shoulder to cry on and hopefully the big cheerleader you know, who's there making sure they go on to success. So that, that's from us, um, I would say. But I would say the one thing that if I was to take it away, and I know that you, you read Michael Gerber, and I've got, there's one thing that I, that I was taught many years ago when I was, was a young partner, a young manager at Whitbread, um, was, I've got no idea who said this, by the way, the man who builds a machine that runs without him is a man to be admired. Or in this day and age, a person who builds a machine that runs without them is the person to be admired. And that I would say is probably something I would say, if nothing else, take that, because if you can build a machine that runs without you, then you've got choices. You've got choices as to whether you want to expand it, whether you want to just live with that, or whether now you want to take that and replicate it. Basically, that's all franchising is. Um, and if it, it may well be that you're selling a franchise of one, so be it. But if you can build that machine that runs without you, you'll be a better person for it. And yeah. sadly, if you figure out how to do it, let me know, because I'm not always that great. <laughs> Well, what, what you described—it's a constant challenge for me as well. Well, it is a challenge in, in different industries because there's so many owners that go, "Well, yeah, it's all in my head," and the key is how do you unpack their head so that they're building equity and building a business as opposed to building an income stream. And I think that's the difference. And and one is worth a lot more than the other. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes time to move away from working into life after work, oh, Jeremy. And it's yeah. not just about the money. Sometimes it's about just getting a better life. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, money is just the outcome of, uh, yeah, and as you mentioned earlier. Hey, thanks for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. And um, all the best to you guys at Sobel Roads. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, on behalf of myself and, and all the partners on Sobel Roads, we look forward to seeing you again soon, perhaps when we're all allowed to be in physical rooms together. Um, but for now, um, from me and my cuddly friends, <laughs> thank you very much, Daryl. I appreciate uh, you, you, you inviting me along. Cheers, Jeremy. Bye.